Chapter Sixteen of the Romance of Modern Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Invention by Archibald Williams. Chapter Sixteen Types of Car. Automobiles may be classified according to the purpose they serve, according to their size and weight or according to their motive power. We will first review them under the latter head. A. Petrol. The petrol motor, suitable alike for large cars of 40 to 60 horsepower and for the small bicycle weighing 70 pounds or so, at present undoubtedly occupies the first place in popular estimation on account of its comparative simplicity which more than compensates certain defects that affect persons off the vehicle more than those on it. Smell and noise. The chief feature of the internal explosion motor is that at one operation it converts fuel directly into energy by exploding it inside a cylinder. It is herein more economical than steam, which loses power while passing from the boiler to the driving gear. Petrol, cycles, and small cars have usually only one cylinder, but large vehicles carry two, three, and sometimes four cylinders. Four and more avoid that bugbear of rotary motion, dead points, during which the momentum of the machinery alone is doing work. And for that reason, the engines of racing cars are often quadrupled. For the sake of simplicity, we will describe the working of a single cylinder, leaving the reader to imagine it acting alone or in concert with others, as he pleases. In the first place, the fuel, petrol, is a very inflammable distillation of petroleum, so ready to ignite that it must be most rigorously guarded from naked lights, so quick to evaporate, that the receptacles containing it, if not quite airtight, will soon render it stale and unprofitable for motor driving. The engine, to mention its most important parts, consists of a single-action cylinder, giving a thrust one way only, a heavy flywheel revolving in an airtight circular case, and connected to the piston by a hinged rod, which converts the reciprocating movement of the piston into a rotary movement of the crankshaft built in with the wheel. Inlet and outlet valves, a carburetor for generating petrol gas and a device to ignite the gas and air mixture in the cylinder. The action of the engine is as follows. As the piston moves outward in its first stroke, it sucks through the inlet valve a quantity of mixed air and gas, the proportions of which are regulated by special taps. The stroke ended, the piston returns, compressing the mixture and rendering it more combustible. Just as the piston commences its second outward stroke, an electric spark passed through the mixture mechanically ignites it and creates an explosion which drives the piston violently forwards. The second return, 
forces the burnt gas through the exhaust valve, which is lifted by cog gear, once in every two revolutions of the crank, into the silencer. The cycle of operations is then repeated. We see that during the three quarters of the cycle, the suction, compression, and expulsion, the work is performed entirely by the flywheel. It follows that a single cylinder motor, to work at all, must rotate the wheel at a high rate. Once stopped, it can be restarted only by the action of the handle or pedals, a task often so unpleasant and laborious that the driver of the car, when he comes to rest for a short time only, disconnects his motor from the driving gear and lets it throb away idly beneath him. The means of igniting the gas in the cylinders may be either a Bunsen burner or an electric spark. Tube ignition is generally considered inferior to electrical because it does not permit timing of the explosion. Large cars are often fitted with both systems, so as to have one in reserve should the other break down. Electric ignition is most commonly produced by the aid of an intensity coil, which consists of an inner core of coarse insulated wire, called a primary coil, and an outer or secondary coil of very fine wire. A current passes at intervals, timed by a cam, on the exhaust valve gear, working a make-and-break contact blade from an accumulator through the primary coil, exciting by induction a current of much greater intensity in the secondary. The secondary is connected to a sparking plug, which screws into the end of the cylinder and carries two platinum points about one thirty-second of an inch apart. The secondary current leaps this little gap in the circuit, and the spark, being intensely hot, fires the compressed gas. Instead of accumulators, a small dynamo driven by the motor is sometimes used to produce the primary current. By moving a small lever, known as the advancing lever, the driver can control the time of explosion relatively to the compression of the gas and raise or lower the speed of the motor. The strokes of the petrol-driven cylinder are very rapid, varying from 1,000 to 3,000 a minute. The heat of very frequent explosions would soon make the cylinder too hot to work, were not measures adopted to keep it cool. Small cylinders, such as are carried on motorcycles, are sufficiently cooled by a number of radiating ribs cast in a piece with the cylinder itself. But for large machines, a water jacket or tank surrounding the cylinder is a necessity. Water is circulated through the jacket by means of a small centrifugal pump working off the driving gear, and through a coil of pipes fixed in the front of the car to catch the draft of progression. So long as the jacket and tubes are full of water, the temperature of the cylinder cannot rise above the boiling point. Motion is transmitted from the motor to the driving wheels by intermediate gear, which in cycles may be only a leather band or couple of cogs. But in cars is more or less complicated. Under the body of the car, running usually across it, is the countershaft, 
fitted at each end with a small cog, which drives a chain passing also over much larger cogs fixing to the driving wheels. The countershaft engages with the cylinder mechanism by a friction clutch. A couple of circular faces, which can be pressed against one another by a lever. To start his car, the driver allows the motor to obtain a considerable momentum, and then, using the friction lever, brings more and more stress onto the countershaft, until the friction clutch overcomes the inertia of the car and produces movement. Gearing, suitable for level stretches, would not be sufficiently powerful for hills. The motor would slow and probably stop from want of momentum. A car, therefore, is fitted with changing gears, which give two or three speeds, the lower for ascents, the higher for the level, and on declines, the friction clutch can be released, allowing the car to coast. B. Steam cars. Though the petrol car has come to the front of late years, it still has a powerful rival in the steam car. Inventors have made strenuous efforts to provide steam engines light enough to be suitable for small pleasure cars. At present, the locomobile, American, and Serpolet, French systems, are increasing their popularity. The locomobile, the cost of which, about 120 pounds, contrasts favorably with that of even the cheaper petrol cars, has a small multi-tubular boiler wound on the outside, with two or three layers of piano wire to render it safe at high pressures. As the boiler is placed under the seat, it is only fit and proper that it should have a large margin of safety. The fuel, petrol, is passed through a specially designed burner, pierced with hundreds of fine holes, arranged in circles round air inlets. The feed supply to the burner is governed by a spring valve, which cuts off the petrol automatically as soon as the steam in the boiler reaches a certain pressure. The locomobile runs very evenly and smoothly, and with very little noise. A welcome change after the very audible explosion motor. The Serpolet system is a peculiar method of generating steam. The boiler is merely a long coil of tubing, into which a small jet of water is squirted by a pump at every stroke of the cylinders. The steam is generated and used in a moment and the speed of the machine is regulated by the amount of water thrown by the pumps. By an ingenious device, the fuel supply is controlled in combination with the water supply, so that there may not be any undue waste in the burner. C. Electricity Of electric cars there are many patterns, but at present they are not commercially so practical as the other two types. The great drawbacks to electrically driven cars are the weight of the accumulators, which often scale nearly as much as all the rest of the vehicle, and the difficulty of getting them recharged when exhausted. We might add to these the rapidity with which the accumulators become worn out, and the consequent expense of renewal. T. A. Edison is reported at work on an accumulator which will surpass all hitherto constructed, 
having a much longer life and weighing very much less power for power. The longest continuous run ever made with electricity, 187 miles at Chicago, compares badly with the feat of a petrol car which, on November 23, 1900, traveled a thousand miles on the Crystal Palace track in 48 hours, 24 minutes, without a single stop. Successful attempts have been made by Messrs. Piper and Janatsky to combine the petrol and electric systems by an arrangement which, instead of wasting power in the cylinders when less speed is required, throws into action electric dynamos to store up energy, convertible when needed, into motive power by reversing the dynamo into a motor. But the simple electric car will not be a universal favorite until either accumulators are so light that a very large store of electricity can be carried without inconvenient addition of weight, or until charging stations are erected all over the country at distances of fifty miles or so apart. Whether steam will eventually get the upper hand of the petrol engine is at present uncertain. The steam car has the advantage over the gas engine car in ease of starting. The delicate regulation of power, facility of reversing, absence of vibration, noise and smell, and freedom from complicated gears. On the other hand, the petrol car has no boiler to get out of order or burst, no troublesome gauges requiring constant attention, and there is a small difficulty about a supply of fuel. Petrol sufficient to give motor power for hundreds of miles can be carried if need be, and as long as there is petrol on board, the car is ready for work at a moment's notice. Judging by the number of the various types of vehicles actually at work, we should say that while steam is best for heavy traction, the gas engine is most often employed on pleasure cars. D. Liquid air will also have to be reckoned with as a motive power. At present, it is only on its probation, but the writer has good authority for stating that before these words appear in print there will be on the roads a car driven by liquid air, and able to turn off eighty miles in the hour. Manufacture As the English were the pioneers of the steam car, so are the Germans and French the chief manufacturers of the petrol car. While the hands of English manufacturers were tied by short-sighted legislation, continental nations were inventing and controlling valuable patents, so that even now our manufacturers are greatly handicapped. Large numbers of petrol cars are imported annually from France, Germany, and Belgium. Steam cars come chiefly from America and France. The former country sent us nearly 2,000 vehicles in 1901, there are signs, however, that English engineers mean to make a determined effort to recover lost ground, and it is satisfactory to learn that in heavy steam vehicles, such as are turned out by Thornycroft and Company, this country holds the lead. We will hope that in a few years we shall be exporters in turn. Having glanced at the history and nature of the various types of car, it will be interesting to turn to a consideration of their traveling capacities, 
as we have seen a steam omnibus attained in eighteen thirty a speed of no less than thirty-five miles an hour on what we should call bad roads it is therefore to be expected that on good modern roads the latest types of cars would be able to eclipse the records of seventy years ago that such has indeed been the case is evident when we examine the performances of cars in races organized as tests of speed france with its straight beautifully kept military roads is the country par excellence for the chauffeur one only has to glance at the map to see how the main highways conform to euclid's dictum that a straight line is the shortest distance between any two points for example between rowan and deepa where a park of artillery well posted could rake the road either way for miles the growth of speed in the french races is remarkable in eighteen ninety four the winning car ran at a mean velocity of thirteen miles an hour in eighteen ninety five of fifteen the year eighteen ninety eight witnessed a great advance to twenty three miles and the next year to thirty miles but all these speeds paled before that of the paris to bordeaux race of nineteen o one in which the winner mr fournier traversed the distance of three hundred and twenty seven and one half miles at a rate of fifty three and three quarter miles per hour the famous sud express running between the same cities and considered the fastest long-distance express in the world was beaten by a full hour it is interesting to note that in the same races a motor bicycle a werner weighing eighty pounds or less successfully accomplished the course at an average rate of nearly thirty miles an hour the motor car after waiting seventy years had had its revenge on the railways this was not the only occasion on which an express service showed up badly against its nimble rival of the roads in june nineteen o one the french and german authorities forgot old animosities in a common enthusiasm for the automobile and organized a race between paris and berlin it was to be a big affair in which the cars of all nations should fight for the speed championship every possible precaution was taken to ensure the safety of the competitors and the spectators flags of various colors and placards marked out the course which lay through rheims luxembourg koblenz frankfurt eisenach leipzig and potsdam to the german capital about fifty towns and large villages were neutralized that is to say the competitors had to consume a certain time in traversing them at the entrance to each neutralized zone a control was established as soon as a competitor arrived he must slow down and a card on which was printed the time of his arrival was handed to a pilot who cycled in front of the car to the other control at the farther end of the zone from which when the proper time had elapsed the car was dismissed among other rules were that no car should be pushed or pulled during the race by anyone else than the passengers that at the end of the day only a certain time should be allowed for cleaning and repairs and that a limited number of persons varying with the size of the car should be permitted to handle it during that period a small army of automobile club representatives 
besides thousands of police and soldiers were distributed along the course to restrain the crowds of spectators it was absolutely imperative that for vehicles propelled at a rate from fifty to sixty miles an hour a clear path should be kept at dawn on july twenty seventh one hundred and nine racing machines assembled at the fort de champigny outside paris in readiness to start for berlin just before half-past three the first competitor received the signal two minutes later the second and then at short intervals for three hours the remaining one hundred and seven among whom was one lady madame de gast at least twenty thousand persons were present even at that early hour to give the racers a hearty farewell and demonstrate the interest attaching in france to all things connected with automobilism great excitement prevailed in paris during the three days of the race every few minutes telegrams arrived from posts on the route telling how the competitors fared the news showed that during the first stage at least a hard fight for the leading place was in progress the french cracks fournier charon dignif farman and girardot pressed hard on Horgier's number two at the starting point fournier soon secured the lead and those who remembered his remarkable driving in the paris bordeaux race at once selected him as the winner Aix la chapelle two hundred and eighty-three miles from paris and the end of the first stage was reached in six hours twenty-eight minutes fournier first de Knief second by six minutes on the twenty-eighth the racing became furious several accidents occurred edge driving the only english car wrecked his machine on a culvert the sharp curve of which flung the car into the air and broke its springs another ruined his chances by running over and killing a boy but fournier antony de Knief, and girardot managed to avoid mishaps for that day and covered the ground at a tremendous pace at dusseldorf girardot won the lead from fournier to lose it again shortly antony driving at a reckless speed gained ground all day and arrived a close second at hanover the halting place after a run averaging in spite of bad roads and dangerous corners no less than fifty-four miles an hour the chauffeur in such a race must indeed be a man of iron nerves through the great black goggles which shelter his face from the dust-laden hurricane set up by the speed he travels at he must keep a perpetual piercingly keen watch though travelling at express speed there are no signals to help him he must be his own signalman as well as driver he must mark every loose stone on the road every inequality every sudden rise or depression he must calculate the curves at the corners and judge whether his mechanician hanging out on the inward side will enable a car to round a turn without slackening speed his calculations and decisions must be made in the fraction of a second for a moment's hesitation might be disaster his driving must be furious and not reckless the timid chauffeur will never win the careless one will probably lose 
his head must be cool although the car leaps beneath him like a wild thing and the wind lashes his face at least one well-tried driver found the mere mental strain too great to bear and retired from the contest and we may be sure that a few of the competitors slept much during the nights of the race at four o'clock on the twenty-ninth fournier started on the third stage which witnessed another bout of fast travelling it was now a struggle between him and antony for first place the pace rose at times to eighty miles an hour a speed at which our fastest expresses seldom travel such a speed means huge risks for stopping even with the powerful brakes fitted to the large cars would be a matter of a hundred yards or more not far from hanover antony met with an accident girardot now held second place and fournier finished an easy first all along the route crowds had cheered him and hurled bouquets into the car and wished him good speed but in berlin the assembled populace went nearly frantic at his appearance fournier was overwhelmed with flowers laurel wreaths and other offerings dukes duchesses and the great people of the land pressed for presentations he was the hero of the hour thus ended what may be termed a peaceful invasion of germany by the french among other things it had shown that over an immense stretch of country over roads in places bad as only german roads can be the automobile was able to maintain an average speed superior to that of the express trains running between paris and berlin also that in spite of the large number of cars employed in the race the accidents to the public were a negligible quantity it should be mentioned that the actual time occupied by fournier was sixteen hours five minutes that out of the one hundred and nine starters forty-seven reached berlin and that osmond on a motorcycle finished only three hours and ten minutes behind the winner in england such racing would be undesirable and impossible owing to the crookedness of our roads it would certainly not be permissible so long as the twelve miles an hour limit is observed at the present time an agitation is on foot against this restriction which though reasonable enough among traffic and in towns appears unjustifiable in open country to help to convince the magisterial mind of the ease with which a car can be stopped and therefore of its safety even at comparatively high speeds trials were held on january second nineteen o two in welbeck park the results showed that a car travelling at thirteen miles an hour could be stopped dead in four yards at eighteen miles in seven yards at twenty miles in thirteen yards or in less than half the distance required to pull up a horse vehicle driven at similar speeds uses ninety-five per cent of motors at least in england are attached to pleasure vehicles cycles voiturettes and large cars on account of the costliness of cars motorists are far less numerous than cyclists but those people whose means enable them to indulge in automobilism 
find it extremely fascinating. Caricaturists have presented to us in plenty the gloomier incidents of motoring, the broken chain, the burst tire, the something gone wrong. It requires personal experience to understand how lightly these mishaps weigh against the exhilaration of movement, the rapid change of scene, the sensation of control over power which can whirl one along tirelessly, at a pace altogether beyond the capacities of horseflesh. If proof were wanted of the motor car's popularity, it will be seen in the unconventional dress of the chauffeur. The breeze set up by his rapid rush is such as would penetrate ordinary clothing. He dons cumbrous fur cloaks. The dust is all-pervading at times. He swathes himself in dust-proof overalls and mounts large goggles edged with velvet, while a cap of semi-nautical, cut tightly drawn down over his neck and ears, serves to protect those portions of his anatomy. The general effect is peculiarly unpicturesque, but even the most artistically-minded driver is ready to sacrifice appearances to comfort and the proper enjoyment of his car. In England, the great grievance of motorists arise from the speed limit imposed by law. To restrict a powerful car to twelve miles an hour is like confining a thoroughbred to the paces of a broken-down cab horse. Carelessly driving is unpardonable, but its occasional existence scarcely justifies the intolerant attitude of the law towards motorists in general. It must, however, be granted in justice to the police that the chauffeur, from constant transgression of the law, becomes a bad judge of speed, and often travels at a far greater velocity than he is willing to admit. The convenience of the motor-car for many purposes is immense, especially for cross-country journeys, which may be made from door to door without the monotony or indirectness of railway travel. It bears the doctor swiftly on his rounds. It carries the businessman from his country house to his office. It delivers goods for the merchant, parcels for the post office. In the warfare of the future, too, it will play its part, whether to drag heavy ordnance or in stores, or to move commanding officers from point to point, or perform errands of mercy among the wounded. By the courtesy of the locomobile company, we are permitted to append the testimony of Captain R. S. Walker, R.E., to the usefulness of a car during the Great Boer War. Several months ago I noticed a locomobile car at Cape Town, and being struck with its simplicity and neatness, bought it, and took it up country with me, with a view to making some tests with it over bad roads, etc., its first trip was over a rough course round Pretoria, especially chosen to find out defects before taking it into regular use. Naturally, as the machine was not designed for this class of work, there were several. In about a month, these had all been found out and remedied, and the car was in constant use, taking stores, etc., around the towns and forts. It also performed some very useful work in visiting out stations, where searchlights were either installed or wanted, and in this way visited nearly all the bigger towns in the Transvaal. 
it was possible to go round all the likely positions for a searchlight in one day at every station which frequently means considerably over fifty miles of most indifferent roads more than a single horse could have been expected to do and the car generally carried two persons on these occasions the car was also used as a tender to a searchlight plant or a gun carriage and limber being utilized to fetch gasoline carbons water etc etc and also to run the dynamo for charging the accumulators used for sparking thus saving running the gasoline motor for this purpose to do this the trail of the carriage on which was the dynamo was lowered on to the ground the back of the car was pulled up one wheel being supported on the dynamo pulley and the other clear of the ground and two bolts were passed through the balance gear to join it on one occasion the car ran a 30 cm searchlight for an hour driving a dynamo in this way in consequence of this a trailer has been made to carry a dynamo and projector for searchlighting in the field but so far this has not been so used the trailer hooks into an eye passing just behind the balance gear a maxim colt or small ammunition cart etc could be attached to the same eye undoubtedly the best piece of work done by the car so far was its trial trip with the trailer when it blew up the mines at klein neck these mines were laid some eight months previously and had never been looked to in the interval there had been several bad storms the boars and cattle had been frequently through the neck it had been on fire and finally it was shelled with lightite the mines eighteen in number were found to be intact except two which presumably had been fired off by the heat of the veldt fire all the insulation was burnt off the wires and the battery was useless it had been anticipated that a dynamo exploder would be inadequate to fire these mines so a two hundred and fifty volt two horsepower motor which happened to be in pretoria weighing about three or four hundred weight was placed on the trailer a quarter of a mile of insulated cable some testing gear the kits of three men and their rations for three days with the case of gasoline for the car were also carried on the car and trailer and the whole left pretoria one morning and trekked to rietfontein two of us were mounted the third drove the car at rietfontein we halted for the night and started next morning with an escort through commando neck round the north of the Magaliasburg to near klein neck where the road had to be left and the car taken across country through bushveld at the bottom the going was pretty easy only a few bushes had to be charged down and the grass etc rather wound itself round the wheels and chain as the rise became steeper the stones became very large and the car had to be taken along very gingerly to prevent breaking the wheels a halt was made about a quarter of a mile from the top of the neck where the mines were these were reconnoitred and the wire etc was picked up the portion which was useless was placed on top of the charges and the remainder taken to the car the dynamo was slid off the trailer the car backed against it one wheel was raised slightly and placed against the dynamo pulley which was held up to it by a man using his rifle as a lever the other wheel was on the ground with a stone under it the balance gear being free the dynamo was excited without the other wheel moving and the load being on for a very short time that is from the time of touching lead on dynamo terminal to firing of the mine no harm could come to the car 
when all the leads had been joined to the dynamo the car was started and after a short time when it was judged to have excited the second terminal was touched a bang of clouds of dust resulted and the Kleinneck minefield had ceased to exist the day was extremely hot and the work had not been light so the tea made with the water drawn from the boiler which we were able to serve round to the main body of our escort was much appreciated and washed down the surplus rations we dispensed with to accommodate the battery and wire which we could not leave behind for the enemy on the return journey we found this extra load too much for the car and had great difficulty getting up to commando neck frequently having to stop to get up steam so these materials were left at the first blockhouse and the journey home continued in comfort a second night at retfontaine gave us a rest after our labor and the third afternoon saw us on our way back to pretoria as luck would have it a sandstorm overtook the car which had a lively time of it the storm began by blowing the sole occupant's hat off so the two mounted men being a long way behind he shut off steam and chased his hat in the meantime the wind increased and the car sailed off on its own and was only just caught in time to save a smash luckily the gale was in the right direction for the fire was blown out and it was impossible to light a match in the open the car sailed into a port in the outskirts of pretoria got a tow from a friendly cart through it and then steamed home after the fire had been relit the load carried on this occasion without the battery etc must have been at least five hundredweight beside the driver which considering the car is designed to carry two on ordinary roads and that these roads were by no means ordinary was no mean feat the car as ordinarily equipped for trekking carries the following blankets waterproof sheets etc for two men four planks for crossing ditches bogs stones etc all necessary tools and spare parts a day supply of gasoline a couple of telephones and one mile of wire in addition on the trailer if used for searchlighting one thirty cm projector one automatic lamp for projector one dynamo one hundred volts twenty amperes two short lengths of wire two pairs of carbons tools etc this trailer would normally be carried with the baggage and only picked up by the car when wanted as a light that is as a rule after arriving in camp when a good many other things could be left behind perhaps the most useful work in store for the motor is to help relieve the congestion of our large towns and to restore to the country some of its lost prosperity there is no stronger inducement to make people live in the country than rapid and safe means of locomotion whether public or private at present the slow and congested suburban train services on some sides of london consume as much time as would suffice a motor-car to cover twice or three times the distance we must welcome any form of travel which will tend to restore the balance between country and town by enabling the worker to live far from his work the gain to the health of the nation arising from more even distribution of population would be inestimable a world's tours among the latest projects in automobilism 
on april twenty ninth nineteen o two dr lavis and nine friends started from hyde park corner for a nine months tour on three vehicles the largest of them a luxuriously appointed twenty-four horsepower caravan built to accommodate four persons their route lies through france germany russia siberia china japan and the united states End of chapter 16